So this mimer is from Parshas Amor, because in Parshas Amor we have the command to um, to count the Aimer. So again, this is a mimer from the Alter Rebbe, right? This is from the Kate Tyra as well. So as we might have noticed, again, we started off with a lot of my mom from Tyra R, a lot shorter, a lot less um, detailed in terms of going deep into, into ideas. Um, Look at Taitara is more, is more detailed. So again, there are going to be certain parts of the mind that we might like jump over or very briefly discuss. Um, but basically, this is one of the foundational spheres, probably the foundational sphere of Simon Mimer, although there are one or two more of the Alter Rebbe, which really tries, which really explains to us what is going on spiritually, what is the Avaida, what is the, our job, what is, what do, what's the action plan. Um, while we're counting the Aina, what does that look like for us? So as we know, we're going to start off with the Pasuk from Pasha's Emmer, where we get the command to count the Aina. And then we're going to have questions, and then we're going to start discussing some other stuff, okay? Um, some Hasidic concepts that we're going to then relate back to the questions and then understand Sphera's Aina better. So just a little bit of a background on Sphera's Aina, on the Aina, right? Why is it called Sphera's Aina? Anybody know? The Omer offering. The Omer offering, that's right. They would start counting on the day that they brought the Omer offering, which was on the day after Pesach. And there is a, I'm not very fully familiar with all the details, but there is a law that was in the time of the Beis HaMikdash that um, your crops, you weren't allowed to start eating from your crops until you'd taken the first of the crops, also like the Korean, but also with grain, also with barley, also with wheat until you're taking the first ones to the base of Mikdash and it's called like Chadosh or something and then it was brought as a carbon and then you were able to go back and start eating all of your crops. And so barley actually grows earlier in the year than wheat and so the barley was ready to then be brought. The first of the crop of the barley was ready to be brought during the time of Pesach and so that would be done then and then once they brought this offering they were able to go back home and harvest their barley and eat it and sell it and make, make bread and feed their animals with it, etc. Uh, today, they don't, I don't think they used to make bread with barley. I think today, barley bread is like a health, like you get in a health store, but they, usually <coughs> barley then was what they fed their animals with. Um, and then, in time of Shavuos, that's when the crop of the wheat was ready, and they would bring the sacrifice of wheat. And we're going to actually discuss the difference um, spiritually of why they would bring barley by Pesach and then wheat by Shavuos, um, what the process looks like. And um, it was called the Omer because Omer actually doesn't mean barley. Um, so Ara means barley. Omer is a certain measurement. About this big. Not very big. Um, it's a measurement that they would bring of barley. So it's called the Omer offering and the Karban Omer. And there was a certain process that they would go through that they would not only have to bring it, but they would also do some sort of waving process, okay? Um, you know how we do kaparas? Um, they would lift it up and they would say certain brachot and blessings and wave it, and then they would, which is called the heinif, to wave, and then they would um, sacrifice it on the altar. So this is why it's called Spirata Omer. And we need to try and understand what's the connection between counting the 49 days from Pesach to Shavuot and this Omer offering, right? And the main idea that I think we've mentioned before is the idea that barley, again, is animal food. And the time of Surat Omer is a time to work on our animal soul, to refine our animal soul, and to redirect it towards serving Hashem. And to elevate each one of the nuanced um, emotions that exist within the animal soul. 
So let's go inside, okay? Page three. Does everyone have the place? It's the next mimer. All right. So in Parshas Emar, it describes all the Jewish festivals, the Yom Taibim. There it describes the mitzvah of bringing the Omer offering on the second day of Pesach and of counting the days from bringing that offering until Shavuot. So now we're going to read the Pasuk and then we're going to discuss the questions. So, Vayedaber Hashem al Moshe Lemar, Hashem spoke to Moshe, say, Daber Abanei Yisrael, speak to the Jewish people, Vyamarta Elehim, and say to them, Kitavo el Haaretz, when you come to the land, Asher Ani Noten Lachem, bless you, which I have given to you, Uktsartem et Ktsira, and you will gather your harvest, and you will bring a certain amount, which is called an Omer, of your harvest, the first of your harvest to the Kohen. The Halif et Omer is going to wave this amount of the harvest, Lifne Hashem before Hashem, Lirtsonchem, Lirtsonchem, for your goodwill. That's what it's translated as. Interesting. Macharata Shabbat from the day after Shabbat, Ye Nifenu Akon the Kohen will wave it. And here, when it says the day after Shabbat, it's been explained in all the places that it's referring to the day after Pesach. Although there's a big argument. Have you guys heard of the Tzedukim? Oh yeah, the Sadducees. Sadducees. Why do I call them the Sadducees? Is that how it's written? Yeah. Sadducees. Yeah. I feel like we've had this discussion. Um, Sadducees. They claimed that the day after Shabbos meant day after Shabbos. Today, Sunday, right? It says very clearly, Mamachrata Shabbat. But no, it's referring to the day after Pesach, and the Gemara explains exactly why, um, goes back and forth and explains how we get to the conclusion with very with a very clear certainty that it's the day after Shabbos. The end of the Mamma is going to discuss why it says the day after Shabbos and opens up a channel for confusion and opens up this claim of the Sadducees. This is going to be one of the questions, but we have. This is I'm jumping outside. We're gonna we're gonna deal with the answer to this question at the end of the month. Why it specifically says the day after Shabbos instead of saying the day after Pesach? What's the what's the message there? Okay, then we have the continuation, and this is what the verse that our entire mimer is based off of. You shall count for yourselves from the day after Shabbat again from the second day of Pesach. From the day that you bring this Omer offering for waving, Sheva um, Shabbatot, and you will count seven weeks, to Mimot, whole weeks, to Yana, you will have, Ad Mimacharat Shabbat, until the day after Shabbat Hashviit, of the seventh week, Tisferu Chamishim Yom, you will count 50 days, Vahekraftem Mincha Chadashal Hashem, and you will then bring a new flower offering to Hashem which is then the flower offering from wheat that they would bring on Shavuot. So from the day that you bring the barley offering on the second day of Shavuot, you will count seven complete weeks until you bring the flower offering on Shavuot. Okay, so first we're going to explain a little bit about what is Usfartim Lachem. What is it talking about up here? And then we're going to get to the questions a little bit later. But a few questions I'm going to give you outside to keep in mind for now, okay? First of all, why is it called Usfartem Lachen? This is a question. Yeah. These are questions that I'm giving you as a context, okay, of what we're going to be discussing. Why specifically is it called Usfartem Lachem Lispar? We're going to see the significance of that. Why specifically does it say Mimachrat Shabbat instead of saying Mimachrat 
Pesach, from Miyom Sheni Le Pesach, however I could have said it. From the second day of Pesach, instead it opens up this option for being confused by saying from the day after Shabbat. Why does it say you should count 50 days? How many days do we actually count? 49. 49. Um, and this is something that the Rebbe really discusses at length, our Rebbe. Um, and what's the connection between the Omer offering and Sirat Omer? Okay, these are just off of the top of my head. Questions that you can keep in mind and have in mind as we're going to go into now discussing different, um, different ideas. Okay. Um, by the way, complete side note. I kept on telling you that there was this mimer, right, like I was telling you there was this mimer I couldn't find, I couldn't find. That's what about like for Omer and Hachimahad. And I found the mimer. I found it because it's actually called the Svartam Lachem. And I was looking in the, all the Lagba Omer Maimara. Oh. It's actually um, it's actually a Spirata Omer Maimara by the Rebbe. If anyone's interested, I highly recommend maybe learning it in the Chavruta, finding the English somewhere if you can find it. Um Spirata Lachem five seven eleven, which is the year that the Rebbe became Rebbe. It's the first Maimara that the Rebbe gave of Spirata Omer based on the Uspartam Lachem of the Alter Rebbe, wow. and all the Rabbeim have Maimara basically based on this Uspartam Lachem. It's a very foundational Maimara. What is it about? It speaks there about the practical aspect of working on our emotions. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to transform our emotions for our generation today? Because it's a very, very, very lofty thing that seems very, very hard to reach. I was very much debating last night, which if I should just go and teach that one. But um, first of all, I couldn't find it with, with the English next to it. And also, I think sticking with the foundational MRI gives us a real help because then when you want to go and then learn Maimaram that are explanations of the original Maimar, you can understand it more. You can have the background. What is it called? It's called Usfartim Lachem and it's from Tovshin Yud Aleph. Okay, 5711. Highly recommend to learn it. It's not a very long Maimar. It's not very long. It's medium though. It's not very short. Um, And it also discusses there the significance of Lagba Omer, how Lagba Omer fits into the process (coughs) of Spirit Omer. And maybe, maybe if we go through this Maimar very quickly, which could happen, then maybe we'll, we'll take a few lessons to learn that as well, we'll see. But um, I do recommend making sure this, this fair to that you learn it. Um, okay, now let's speak a little bit about Osvartim. Why, what, is, what does this mean that we're counting the Omer? Today we count the Omer. Um, there's a big debate, which is actually discussed in that Omer, whether it's Doraisa or Durabanan, the counting of the Omer, um, but it is a commandment. And we need to try and understand what does this commandment represent in our connection and relationship with Hashem. So he starts. Rebbe starts by saying, Hine, Usfartem Hulashon Bahirut. Usfartem, the word Usfartem, which means and you should count, comes from the word Bahirut, which means to shine. Kmo Even Sapir, like a precious stone. A precious stone is a stone that shines. Oh, you, yeah, it's right here somewhere, right? Even Sapir. So the Hebrew word of the word Samach Peresh, which is the Shoresh, is used in two different words with various meanings. So in this memory mentions two. There are more meanings than for Samach Peresh. Um, for example, like Lispar can also be a Saper to tell over. But here we're speaking about two definitions and explanations for the Shoresh. One, Lispar to count, and two, Sapirut, which means shining and radiance. The Ken Eser Spirot, Hulashon Behirot, and also... The ten sefirot, which we have within ourselves, right? And which is mirroring ten sefirot of Hashem is also from this word, from this root word of samach pe, resh, which means to shine or to radiate. 
So the ten spirit of Atzilut are ten modes by which Hashem reveals Himself to us. He shines His divine light into us. And this is the meaning of the practical, deeper meaning behind what it means that we should count. Hainu, it means, to draw down these ten sefirot of Hashem, that they should shine for you down here. So what the Altarab essentially did is he just gave us the whole mimer in, in like a, in like a, a condensed, condensed in a sentence, and then now he's going to crack it open and break, up, break down what he said throughout the rest of the mimer. What does Usfartim Lachem Imachat Shabbat mean? What does it mean that we should count the Omer? It comes from the word Samach Peiresh to make shine. And what is the spiritual avoda of counting the Omer? That we should make the ten Sefirot of Hashem shine into our ten Sefirot, into our souls. Okay, what does that mean though? <laughs> that's, that's what the rest of the Mimer is going to discuss. So the Elder is going to continue by saying, Ula to understand this, okay? To understand really what this answer and this explanation means, Hine Pesach Mitzrayim. Pesach is a celebration for the fact that we left Egypt. And Shavuot is a celebration for the giving of the Torah. And before we are able to receive the Torah, we were, it was necessary for us to count seven complete weeks. And only then were we able to receive the Torah. We've discussed this already in Adam Kiyakriv, right? That in order for them to take all of the inspiration that they received and the revelations from Pesach and make it lasting and make it that they were actually holding on the level that they can receive the Torah, they had to earn it in those seven weeks, right? It says in Yechezkel, in the story of the Merkava, again. again, that's why I wanted to discuss it a little bit before, because the um, quotes from the Merkava come up all over Hasidus, so, and different aspects of it. It's a whole long story of the Merkava. So here we're speaking about a quote, the Hachayot, Ratzo, Vashov, and the animals, which is referring to the angels, which are called animals. Ratzo, Vashov are running, and returning. They're going up and they're coming down. Shalamala, because above in the spiritual worlds, hakol bevchinat ratzavashov. Everything is in a constant state of ratzavashov. And I mentioned briefly, briefly ratzavashov last mimer, and I said that we're going to talk about it in this mimer a little bit more at length, because this is one of the foundational ideas that is discussed in Chassidus, and that comes up again and again, this idea of ratzo and shav. Outside of my class, have you guys discussed this idea at all of Ratzo and Shoth? Yeah. Yeah? In Tanya? Or? More so actually in like the Parsha class. Ooh. When it was the Parsha of Nadav and Avihu. Okay. Okay. Um, and like after they passed. So discussing the whole story of what transpired yeah. with, with this idea of Ratzo and Shoth. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So you guys so have a little bit of that class too. Yeah? We touched on it a lot, but like not... Okay, so cool. Not like mentioned. Let's 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 talk about it for like five minutes, and then we'll. Um, and if I'm being repetitive, you can let me know. Um, it's interesting because it says above in the spiritual worlds, everything is at a constant state of ratzav v'shov. So um, before, oh sorry, let me just. I thought because my earphones are in, it's not going to make a noise, but apparently, let me turn it on silent. Okay, there we go. It's even on silent. It's just not on do not disturb. 
So it says that the angels are in a constant state of Ratzavashov. And so first let's try and understand a little bit about what's going on above. And then we can understand how that translates to us down here in our, in our own um, aspects of Ratzavashov. So the angels are creations. They are beings. They have, they have what's called bodies, actually. They have bodies, but not tangible bodies that take up physical space and are limited to physical time. They are limited to spiritual space and spiritual time. They are limited to their own definitions of their one emotion that they serve Hashem with or their one intellectual idea that they serve Hashem with, depending on which world they are in. The world of Bria, in the world of Bria, the angels serve Hashem on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. And in the world of, because Bria is the world of intellect. And in Yitzirah, which is the world of emotions, the the angels, majority of the angels are there, they serve Hashem on a level of emotion. And they have a goof, they have a body, they have a limitation and a definition based on the one emotion that defines them, and with that emotion they can serve Hashem. That's why they're called chayot, that's why they're called animals, because animals have a certain nature, they have, a, they have certain emotions that they feel, and, certain, and that they express, and certain ones that they don't, depending on which animal they are, right? And they are limited to those tendencies, as opposed to man, um, who has the capacity and the possibility for every single expression of every single emotion and, and instinct. So that's why they're called animals. And so these angels, all angels in the spiritual world are in a constant state of Ratzovishov. What does that mean? So what that means is that they are separate from Hashem. And the definition of Ratzovishov is that it only works within a relationship because you can ask about Hashem. Is Hashem in a constant state of Ratzovishov? Because the spiritual worlds are in a constant flux, going up, turning up toward their source, coming back down into their body, into their limitation and into their job down here. And we could say about Hashem, is Hashem in a constant state of Ratzov Eshov? And the answer is no. And the reason is because Hashem exists only in relationship with himself, because everything is Hashem. And so by Hashem, there's no Ratzov Eshov. Why is that important to know? Because it's important to know that anything then that is, so to speak, outside of Hashem, that exists as an independent being, which is defined by the fact that it exists within the framework of a world, even a very, very, very spiritual world, is in this constant state of Ratzovishov because it is in relationship to Hashem. And this starts all the way from the highest worlds, even beyond Atsilot. That every world, every entity that exists as separate, even so, 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 tinily, that's not a word, so minutely separate from Hashem. Every world? Every world is in a constant state of Ratzovishov. What does that mean? And every creation and being within those worlds is in a constant state of Ratzovishov. That means that it goes toward its source, towards its source of life, which is Hashem, and then it comes back down into its own framework and into its own existence and with its own purpose and job. The Ratzov is going up towards the source of Hashem and getting that energy and that life force which it's dependent on from Hashem. And the Shuv is then taking that energy and bringing it down into its own world, into its own universe and into its own life. And the angels, it says, that we learn this idea from the source in Tanakh, which is the Hachayot Ratzovishov. The angels are in this constant set of Ratzovishov. The interesting thing is that I've explained in Kabbalah that Ratzovishov is actually the source for the concept of time. So, uh, yeah. every world is in um, is in a constant state of rotsovishov of burning up of letting go of its own existence 
towards its maker and its creator and its source of life, which is Hashem. And then coming back down, taking that energy that it's received and bringing it back down into its own, into its own reality, okay. which exists in some way separate from Hashem. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. And so just an interesting thing that this is the source of time. In the world of Atzilut, the Ratzon Shav happens at the exact same time because there's nothing to leave. It's not like I'm leaving behind the world of Atzilut and then coming back into it because it's so one and unified with Hashem. It's such a complete reflection of Hashem that Ratzon and Shav are happening almost in a parallel at the same time. But once we get to the world of Bria, it's happening... Well, it depends which creation it is, whether the Ratzon and the Shav is happening first, but it's happening one after the other in a sequence. Ratzon and then Shav, and then Ratzon again, and then Shav again. And this is the source of time. Time as it exists in the world of Atzilut is called, what's it called? Seder's Manim. The order of time, almost like the concept of time, but it's, there's no such thing as the limitation of the existence of time in the world of Atzilut. But already in Bria, there's this idea of time, and it's based on this idea, Ratzon Veshuv, that it's here and it's not here, and it's here and it's not here. That's what time is. It's 10, 59 and 50 seconds, and now it's not, and then it is, and then it's not. It's this concept of this flux, of this flow, of this sequence, which begins in the world of Brianne. It's, a, it's the concept of time as it exists in the spiritual world, which then manifests into the concrete creation of time as we experience it down here. So the... It, the angels, the spiritual worlds, anything that's some sort of creation is in a constant state of Ratzon and Shul. Even us? Like, and our job is to mirror that and to be that as well. Okay. For us, it's less automatic. So like for the angels, like it's like, like this is just what they do. Yes, it's okay. a constant process where they burn up in flames and fiery passion for Hashem. They, and then they come back down and they draw it down into their, mm-hmm. their, into, back into their world. And then they burn up and then they come back down. It's this constant flow. And all of, not just the angels, all of the constellations and all the spiritual entities that are close to Hashem, they're in this constant state, in this constant flow. And it's necessary mm-hmm. because they're grappling with these two ideas that on the one hand, they're one with Hashem and they know that a lot more than we do. And so they're yearning to be one and to, to, to be united and burn up into a flame united with Hashem. But at the same time, they have certain jobs and they have definitions of who they are and what they're supposed to do. And so it's that, it's that constant edge between the two. where so they reach up and then they take that chayut and they bring it back down. And our job is to mirror that and to live in a state of Ratzavashuk down here. And it comes less naturally to us because it's not so obvious to us that we should have Ratzor like it is to the spiritual beings and it's not so obvious to us that we should have Shuv. What's obvious to us is that we should serve ourselves. That's, that's, what we, that's the obvious reality that we have, that this world is here for me to enjoy. And not only is that coming from us, but it's coming, that's the message that comes to us from everywhere outside of us. That is the message that's screamed at us from the billboards and from society. This world is yours for the taking. Enjoy it while it lasts. That's the message in all the forms that that exists in. And so it doesn't come naturally to us. In the spiritual world, it's all, everything is Hashem. It's okay, if everything's Hashem, let me be one with Hashem. Oh, but Hashem wants me to do a certain thing. Okay, so let me then leave that oneness and do my job. But then I want to, so it's automatic. And it's, how they say in Hebrew, move on, may I love. It's obvious in the spirituals. And for us, it's an avoda. It's something that we, we need to work on because it's not as obvious. And so what does that look like in our life? Ratzo is represented by the concept of Mesirot Nefesh, of leaving our form, 
and being united with our source, with Hashem. Which, as you've learned in the story of Nadav Avihu, right, they were all Ratzah and Noshov, right? Right. That's what, what does that mean? They were all Ratzah. All they wanted was to be united with their source, to be united with Hashem, because they had this tremendous love and yearning for Hashem. And the, the Ratzah without Shuv is what's called, the ultimate expression of that is what's called Klota Nefesh. Have you heard of that term? Yeah. Klota Nefesh means the expiration of the soul. To the point that soul loves Hashem so much and wants to be united with Hashem so much that it leaves the limitations so and the constraints of this body. So that's what it means, Klosa Nefesh means. Klosa Nefesh is the ultimate expression of Ratzo without Shov. So Shov is saying, I have this tremendous love for Hashem, but I'm going to take all of that energy that I've received from, you, from bringing myself towards Hashem, I'm going to bring that down into this world because Hashem wants me to be in this world. So I'm going to do what Hashem wants. I'm not going to do what... Oh, it's almost like what I want when I tap into my godly soul is Ratzol. Because all right, godly soul is a flame. And it's in a constant state of desiring to be reunited with its source. Right? As you see, a flame is always flickering upwards to its source in the sun or in the moon. I don't I never remember which, which, where, where the idea is. Hasidus does speak about it. I think it's... I seem to remember that's in the moon. But its source is upwards. And so the flame is always going upwards. So too with our soul. Oh, yeah, with Rabbi Kaufman. This is the... We're on... Nineteen. So what are you discussing now? Basically talking about the idea of how a candle, um, the flame will like flicker up and it like goes away from its source, but then it still wants to go draw back down and like mm-hmm. essentially with the flame, um, for it to be like entirely with its source, it essentially is like just not there. And so you basically for it doesn't us, exist. Yeah, like you it just see it. It's it just not its own thing uh-huh. when like it consumes itself. Mm-hmm. Um and so basically, like with us, we talked about how essentially like Messier Snuffish is like the ultimate like closeness to Hashem, but that also means that like physically for us, we're like not here. You're losing your form. Yeah, you're, you're losing, losing your form to like completely be consumed. Mm-hmm. That's a good, okay, I love how you said that. that. was a brilliant explanation of Ratzel right there. Right there. It's, it's it, that in the process of being united with Hashem, you lose yourself. And that is not, no, that is not our avoida. Our avoida is to serve Hashem within ourselves, right? Within this world. That's shuv. And that's shuv. Shuv means I'm going to do what Hashem wants, right? Ratzo is I'm going to do what my godly soul wants, which is to be one with Hashem. Shuv is I'm going to do what Hashem wants, which is that our godly soul, which is in, wants to be one with Hashem, should come down here and refine our body, refine our soul, refine the world around us. And it's, less of what we see as it's less spiritual it's less enlightening it's less exciting but that is our job our job is ratso but you need our job is shuv but you need the ratso because shuv without ratso is equally as dangerous that's a body without a soul that's that's terrible shuv is doing what Hashem wants which is living as a Jew in this world, or not even as a Jew, which is living the way Hashem wants us to live within the constraints and the limitations of our body and within the limitations of the natural world that we live in. And taking every single um, expression and personality trait and limb of our body and physical thing that we own and that we come into contact with in this world and utilizing it to redirecting it towards Hashem. That's Shuv. <clears throat> but again, 
shuv without ratzah is as dangerous as ratzah without shuv because that's losing the intention behind it. The intention of being one with our body and using our body and being in tune with it and utilizing the physicality around us is for Hashem. So if we lose the intention, which is that it is for Hashem, then it's equally as, equally as dangerous. Then we're like a wick without a candle, right? And what's the point in that? A body without a soul. And so we need both. We need the ratzah and we need the shuv. And we need to be in a constant state of both. The ratzah leading to the shuv. And Hasidus actually shows us how every um, holiday that we experience is the state of ratzah and shuv. Every, um, I just learned something super interesting about Tainus Esther. The Rebbe explains something. This is a really side point, but that why do we fast before Purim? Why do we have this time set before Purim? Because Purim, unlike all the other holidays, is all shav. It's all physical stuff. We don't have kiddish. We don't go to shul to have. Ec- we don't have extra davening. Oh, we don't have. Um, like we have just the day. eating. Yeah, we just have like the eating, which is the shav, which is shav. Um, we have. Okay, we do have the Megillah, but even so, we, it's a story without Hashem's name in it. And Chasra Shalom, to say such a thing, but, but it's much more of Shav as well, even just the story of the way the Megillah is written. And so it explains, ev- it explains that every single aspect of Judaism has to have both Ratzon and Shav. So we lead into Purim with the fast of Esther. Fasting oh. is the epitome of Ratzon. I am denying the needs and the desires of my physical body. It's a side point, but I found that so interesting, just an example of how we see Everything in Judaism is made up of this. Just like the spiritual worlds are in this constant state around Tzavashov, Yiddishkeit is also, and we need to mirror that, we need to live by that. We see this also within Shema. That, Shema Yisrael Shema Keno Shema Echad, V'yahavta et Hashem Elokecha, V'chol Levavcha, V'chol Nafshecha, V'chol Maidecha, is Ratzo. I love Hashem with everything I have. I give everything up for Hashem. And then we see V'haya Im Shamoa Tishmu'u, is shav, it's speaking about serving Hashem by reaping in our crops and the rewards that Hashem is going to give us down here and that we're going to have the rain and that's serving Hashem down here in this world. So we see that also. And in more broader terms, it's explained that actually the whole Kriyachma represents Ratzo and then Shmona Asrei represents shav, but we're davening already for our own needs already again. We're speaking about the needs of the body that we're praying for. So we see this, you can go find any area of Yiddish Kata, we can find the Ratzo. Not me, but the students <laughs> can find the Ratzo and the Shuv in it. By the way, make it a project. Um, yes? Um, could you repeat what you said with what's Shuv without Ratzo? Shuv without Ratzo is, is what we see in the world around us, which is basically the world is mine for the taking, the purpose of me living in this physical body, in this physical world, is for my own use. It's losing the sight of the purpose of us being in this physical world, which is to give it up for Hashem, so to speak, to give it and use it for Hashem. And so Shuv is the easiest, it's, Shuv without Ratzo is what we see when we just walk outside every single day, unfortunately, because that's the, that's the state that we, that we lean towards and that society is, is, is living. Um, that the world is yours, and, and it's, yeah, that's why you're here, to chop as much of the world as you can before you're gone. <laughs> and uh, that's Shov without Ratzo. And it's as dangerous as Ratzo without Shov, because it's not the purpose of creation, just like Ratzo without Shov is not the purpose of creation. So just a little story that I love, that I want to share, that speaks about this idea of, of Ratzo and Shov happening almost together, but Shov happening as it should. Um, 
I'll just share and then we're going to move on. Um, so there's a Rav, it was called the Akhtar Rav, he was a Rebbe. Um, in the time of the Alter Rebbe, he was quite a critic of the Alter Rebbe, but he was a, he was a Tzadik Gamor, he was a complete, complete Tzadik. It wasn't rare for there to be critics of the Alter Rebbe, let's put it that way. And many, many complete Tzadikim were, were critical. Um, the Alter Rav um, had a, a Chassid who had never, ever visited his Rebbe, which we know that in... Chagas circles, as we've discussed, right? The circles, um, not Chabad chassidus. That's like the, that's like the worst thing you could ever do is never go and visit your rebbe. Like the whole point is to put everything aside and make time. Sometimes even three times a year, someone would go to be with their rebbe for the shalosh for galim. That was that was what was customary. He was already older and he'd never made it to the Akhtarov and he decided, you know what? I've got to go. I've got to go. And so finally, he decided he's going to visit his rebbe. He traveled the distance. And he finally, finally got to Akt, where the place, I think it was called Opt. And he walked in, and it was Shabbos by then, when he walked into the, um, to the Tish, right? Where the Rebbe was sitting with his sinim. And what did he see? He looked around. He saw the Rebbe, the Akhtarov, sitting at the head of the table. And eating, and eating, and eating, and eating, and eating, not for 10 men. He was eating, and eating, and eating, and eating. And he thought to himself, this is what... I traveled all the way. This is what I waited my whole life to come and see. This is it. And a guy who's just eating and eating and fresh. This is embarrassing. And in the middle of the tish, the after stopped. stopped. Stopped eating. And he started to tell a story. He said there was once a Jew who had never, ever visited the Beis HaMikdash. Never went to the Beis HaMikdash. And we know he was an old man. And he decided, you know, before I pass away, I need to go to the base of Mikdash. So he got up and he started the journey. And on his way, he stopped some people and he said, which way is it to Yerushalayim? And there was a little kid and he started looking at him like, you don't know how to get to Yerushalayim, you're an old man. You're supposed to be going three times a year. And he started shouting him and embarrassing him. And finally he said, go, you know, turn this way. Okay, so he turned this way, he got to a fork in the road, he stopped somebody else. And he said, which way to Yerushalayim? You don't know how to get to your shalom. You're an old man. You should know the way. You know you should be going every year, multiple times a year. And so he suffered, you know, embarrassment after embarrassment on his way to get to your shalom. Finally got to your shalom. Finally gets to the base of Mikdash. What does he see? Sacrifices. Okay. Kaihanim, sitting and fressing meat, which, by the way, is what they did, because they had a lot of meat they had to eat, and there was a big sin in leaving meat over. It was like a big no-no. It's called Noisar. You're not allowed to leave holy sacrificial meat over until the next day. And so what do you see? You, know, you see blood, you see gore, you see sacrifice, and you see Kaihanim eating meat. And he thought, this is what I came for. This is what I came for. And then the Altar Rav said, and it's the Beisamek Dosh, and it's holy. Mm. And that's the idea that to, you know, to get to such a level that our eating is holy. That's Shof. In order to get to the place where our eating is holy, we need ratzah, we need inspiration, we need to have times where we're connected, where we, we do detach, where we do, where we do get one with ourselves, we recharge, but it's all in order for that shuv again, right? I just love that story, so I thought <laughs> I want to I put it in there and share. Um, Can you repeat the Rebbe's name, the Akhtar? The Akhtar. Akhtar Rebbe, yeah. From Akht, that was his town, yeah. <laughs> He was the Rebbe, have you guys heard of the Ruzhina Rebbe? Yes. Yeah. So he was like the, although the Ruzhina Rebbe actually said, 
I don't have a Rebbe, my Rebbe is Hashem. <laughs> but the teacher of the original Rebbe was the Opta Rebbe. This his student was the original Rebbe. And once, actually, um, the original Rebbe used to fast. He never ate, didn't eat. And the Opta Rebbe once said to him, why don't you eat? <laughs> why don't you eat? And he said, I tried and I can't. So there's different levels of tzaddikim as well. So he never ate anything. Basically. So like, basically. Was very, there were quite a few that was tzaddikim like the at the time like, that were so, 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 so thin. They didn't eat. So there's also, within tzaddikim, there's levels. The highest ultimate level is that you eat, right? But some, you know, you said, I can't. <laughs> um, there's different levels in that, of being able to actually take the food around you and have it just for kadusha. Um, you know, we're holding in the place to have the food around us not be for, you know, anything else, not be for le'umatzeh. But anyway, that's just a side point. Um, okay, another side point. Um, the Magid of Mezrich, his son, Avram Dermalach, also he never ate. He was, he was in a constant state of ratzo. And actually the Magid, before he passed away, spoke to the altar Rebbe and asked him, please take care of my son, make sure he stays alive, make sure he eats. And actually Avram Dermalach passed away from, from Klaisa Nefesh. Like he was in such a state of yearning and love for Hashem, that his soul expired. And that's something that the altar of actually, it, it's brought down, lived with for his whole life. Like the sadness of that, what happened with Avram Damalak. He's called Avram Damalak, Avram the angel, because he literally lived in the state of, of Ratzov, like an wow. angel. Um, yeah. So, clear a bit on Ratzov Yeah. Yeah? Good? Okay. Mm. So we'll finish with that for today. And tomorrow we're going to continue. First of all, we're going to go over the test briefing. And then we're going to see how the process of Pesach leading into Shavuot is the same process of Ratzo and Shav and how we need both. Okay. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. And I find the